0: the father's day is always a blast for me because i get the best cards on the planet they are homemade cards that my daughters and my wife will make and uh, of course it says wonderful things like you know you're the best dad in the world and these kind of things you know which so you go to a, you go to a uh, a card shop, though, and you find cards that uh, aren't always that helpful, like you'll see cards that'll say things like that, you know, you're the best dad in the world and there did some print, you know, for everybody to have. Everybody can't be the best dad in the world. But uh, often you'll also go to shops that'll have, you know, the cards that you can't ever find one that really ever fits the, you know, occasion. Like what if your dad wasn't the best dad in the world, what if he really was kind of a bad dad. You know, you'd have your dysfunctional card section over here. You know, dad, uh, I'm not kidding. If, if somebody did something like that, they'd probably make a million dollars to have some kind of card section that said, you know, dad, you, uh, you blew it, but I love you anyway. Happy Father's Day. You know, something like that. The first Father's Day back in 1910, June uh, that's how old the tradition is, but it actually became cemented the third Sunday in June, back in 1971, when uh, President Johnson said, "All right, this is where we're gonna, this is where we're gonna keep it." And necktie manufacturers have been rejoicing ever since then to have uh, a date where they can begin promoting and selling all these gifts. Well, you get some crazy gifts for Father's Day, and I read a. A a list of some gift suggestions for fathers who are couch potatoes. You know, you always got the the gifts, you know, like the tie and, you know, tools, and tools are great gifts and stuff, by the way. (laughs) But you don't ever see, you know, what if your dad's a couch potato? Well, I ran across a list that had something that you can give fathers who are, uh, it, it says a list for a lazy man's father's day. And these are all real things. This isn't like some gag list. This is, these are real things. For example, uh, for couch potato royalty, you can have a sterling silver remote control. You know what I mean, real fancy, nice remote control. Or from the other perspective, an alternative is what they call electroshock TV therapy. (laughs) It's the the remote control, and if he presses the power button on it, it shocks him. This is real, this is a real, remote control that you can buy. I guess it's to encourage him to perhaps get out and spend a little bit more time with the family or whatnot. If this is a guy who likes to watch television or you you don't mind him watching TV or football, they have a little machine called the Robo Mower. And it's about a $700 gadget that runs around in your backyard and bumps into things and mows the grass. And they've already sold about 5,000 of these things in Sweden. And it's basically an automatic lawn mower. Dad didn't have to mow. And assuming the thing won't get caught in something, it'll run around and bump into stuff and eventually mow your whole backyard. Just make sure your chihuahua's not out there, you know, while it's happening. Uh, And they also have what they call a wireless barbecue thermometer. It lets you wander away from the grill, you know, like if he's watching the game. He actually goes sit down and watch the game and his beeper will go off and let him know when the barbecue's ready on the grill. And then the best one is what they call the dog fetch assistant, or it's called the dog slinger. And you have to kind of define what that is, otherwise it sounds like you know, you're hurling your dog. But it's basically to, for, uh, to fetch the ball. It's something that throws the ball for you. And can you imagine how much fun that would be to basically stand there and watch this machine play with your dog? You know, brings the ball back, puts it down, you know, throws it. Oh, you know, great job, and you're just kind of passive observer. Well, here, this is a list. All of these are real gifts, so you know, if you need to know where to get these things, I've still got the information here, and uh, I can uh, pass it on to you if you'd like uh, to help out a lazy man's Father's Day. A couple of weeks ago when we started the series, we talked about this very idea of laziness in that verse from Proverbs that says that the sluggard craves but gets nothing. That is, he has a great desire to have something that's worthy to be had, but he doesn't have it because he's a sluggard. And the verse goes on to say, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Both of them have desires. Both of them have cravings. But the difference is one's a sluggard and one is diligent. One is lazy and one has discipline. And we tie that into really the spiritual life. As we talked about that verse from 1 Timothy where Paul challenged Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So many times you'll find believers, particularly in the United States, who are very committed to spiritual maintenance. They have became a Christian maybe some time ago. They've grown to a comfortable plateau, kind of comfortable in my Christian culture. Not that many people are saying, you know, you ought to get your life together. So you feel like, you know, I'm pretty much arrived and I'm just kind of waiting for Jesus to come. You have plateaued spiritually and you really don't have a great desire to grow because the culture around you, there really isn't, you know, a great challenge for you to grow. And so you plateau. And your commitment is to maintaining that plateau of social acceptance in your Christianity as opposed to spiritual growth. Spiritual maintenance or spiritual growth. Again, back to the idea of of a sluggard or the idea of the diligent. We want to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And if godliness is our goal, then there is no spiritual maintenance. It's always the challenge for spiritual growth. Never being content with where you are spiritually, but always wanting to move on. You saying, now wait a minute, isn't there a verse in the scripture that says, you know, that the Lord will complete the work he began in you? I mean, why do I have to do a thing? I mean, I thought this was all about grace, that my relationship with God is based on grace. Well, it is, most certainly. And I think most people, when they come across that kind of a, what they feel is a contradiction, you know, is it grace, is it totally free, or does God, you know, want me to do these things? Well, the answer, very simply, is that grace, it's not grace or works, in a sense, but grace is the the means by which we have a relationship with God to begin with. It is by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're saved. Period. And because of that grace, it motivates us. It gives us an attitude of gratefulness to live a life that's pleasing to Him, to want to grow to be more like Him. If you read the book of Titus, you see this whole theme throughout Titus. The the theme of it is essentially that God's grace has come and it instructs us to do good deeds. Out of the security of our salvation, we cannot lose it if you place your faith in Jesus. In that security, that safety net underneath, we're challenged to walk that, that line. We're challenged to walk the Christian life based on the fact that His grace has you secure. The spiritual disciplines, the series that we continue today, those habits that have been practiced by believers of all ages that we see confirmed in the scripture, is simply the things like uh, prayer, like we saw last week, Uh, like time in the word, which we are going to look at this week and some next week as well, a different aspect of it. Uh, Obedience, worship, serving, various things that are disciplines in our lives that help us to grow. And as we've said before, a lot of times people get the impression that if I have, for example, read my Bible today, I am a good Christian. If I have spent my time praying, I'm a good Christian. If I haven't kicked the dog, I'm a good Christian. As long as I do these things, I'm a good Christian. When in reality, your best day You know, as uh, Jerry Bridges says, your best day is never so good that you don't need God's grace. And your worst day is never so bad that you've fallen beyond God's grace. What you do or what you don't do has nothing to do with your relationship or your stance before God. The whole motivation behind grace is that we do these things because we are grateful to him. The spiritual disciplines are the means by which we grow. They're not the end. They're not the goal. The goal is not read the Bible. The goal is godliness. And that happens through the means of reading scripture, prayer, and various other items. So that's such an important distinction that we want to try to hammer each time and remember. We're going to look at a couple of different passages today. First of which is in Deuteronomy. So. If you brought a Bible, turn there. And if you didn't bring one, you'll want to bring it. And if you don't have one, we've got one we'll give you. You need to have a copy of the scriptures as our text today is very clearly going to show. The word of God and your life are intended to go hand in hand. If you had to invent a religion, how many of you would invent a religion that first of all started off saying, you are totally depraved. Would you come up with a religion that says, I've got no hope at all by myself? And yet that is what Christianity is. It is a religion, i mean to call it that, it really isn't religion. Religion is man's effort to get to God. All other world religions are efforts to get to God. Christianity is God's work in reaching out to us. It's just the opposite in that God has reached out to us through Jesus Christ. How many of you would come up with a a religion that says you don't have a chance in and of yourself? Nobody would do that. And yet all other world religions say you get to God or their version of God by some means of buying him off. I either do this or I give this or I say this or I pray this and maybe I'll get to whatever version of heaven there is. There's no security. Because you never know if you're good enough. Christianity starts off with the assumption saying, you're not good enough. And yet, in God's grace, he says, but i provided a way for all your sin to be removed, simply by by grace through faith in Jesus. That's the message of the Bible. It is extremely unique. If I was to take 40 of us here out of this group and say... uh, Let's write down on a 3x5 card what your view is of heaven and hell and uh, salvation, the afterlife, the purpose of life. Maybe here in this room we'd uh, all land on the same page. That may be a bit optimistic. Scatter those 40 people, go out through Denton, and I guarantee you we'd have 40 different answers. And here we live in the same culture, speak the same language, live in the same point in history. And yet, there's no way that we could agree. 40 different people all agreeing on those key issues. No way. And yet, when you look at the Bible, you see 40 different people, 40 different authors, over 1,500 years, in three different languages, three different continents, and yet there is one single theme. Now, what are the odds that one book, with all that diversity, at the same time, is going to have all that unity? There's no way unless it's true. How many of the hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about one man, uh, how many of those were the odds that all those prophecies could come true in one person? Mathematically, it's pretty much impossible. You do the, the figuring and there's so many, uh, there's so many uh, exponents that it basically is not realistic to think that all those prophecies could happen in one man. How could it happen? Unless it is true. The Bible is God's word. And this word we are told is not an idle word for us. This is what Moses is going to teach us, what the Lord teaches us today, starting in Deuteronomy 32. This marvelous book is intended to change your life. Look down at verse 45, Deuteronomy 32, verse 45. This is where we're going to begin reading. And look at what it says. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. A couple of key things to notice in these two verses. There is an order there is a logical progression. God told them first of all you take to your heart these words. First of all you and take it to your heart. What you hear in the Word of God, what you see in the written word should be a conduit to your heart. And so often it's not, is it? It's a conduit just to our mind maybe and then a short-term memory at best and what we read or what we hear and then it vanishes and we don't keep it we're told that this is to go to our heart take to your heart and notice also all the words not some of the words not most of the words not the ones you like all the words all of it and of course up to this time only Deuteronomy had been written only five books But the the general principle is there that all the words of God you're to take to your heart. All the scripture, all the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. All the words you take to your heart. And then they're told, teach it to your sons, teach it to your children. What you have committed to your heart, now pass that on to the next generation. And notice again he repeats it, all the words all the words. All the words in your heart and then teach them all the words as well. Leave nothing out. And then we're told why this command is given. Why take the Bible to heart? Why teach it to others? Look at verse 47. Here's the reason. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed it is your life. It's not an idle word. You know what that means? We speak of an idle word uh, in our, our culture. We, you know, if we say that he's saying idle words, it's the idea that words that don't really mean anything, the words that don't really have any weight to them. And it's the same general idea here. In the original Hebrew, this word for idle means empty. The word, in fact, is used of jars that have nothing in it, in the sense it's empty. And we translate it here that it's idle. Uh, An idle word refers that something is empty of significance. And God tells us his word is not that for you. Not only is it not empty, but it is your life. Interesting phrase. Doesn't mean that it is part of your life. It is a big part of your life. It is your life. Your commitment and relationship to this book, these ancient words, these eternal truths. That's your life. The quality of your spiritual life is the quality of your life regardless of your circumstances. You've got a strong spiritual life, a strong relationship with God, doesn't matter rich or poor. Your life is a quality life. If you have a bad spiritual life, doesn't matter rich or poor, your life is not a quality life. God has rigged our existence that we cannot live apart from his word. You saw it all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Satan confused the woman, confused Eve in the garden and deceived her into doubting God's word to where now she doesn't have this as the means by which she makes decisions, it's her own feelings, immediately she disobeyed God and fell, and Adam fell, and the whole human race fell. We were never designed to live simply by our own wits. Or as Jesus would elsewhere say, as we'll see, you don't live on bread alone, but on every word written comes from the mouth of God. USA Today reports 11% of Americans read the Bible daily. 11% of all America reads the Bible daily. And that that's actually sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But among believers, George Barna reports 18% of Christians read it daily. To where we're really not reading that much more than the general populace of the United States. And in fact, Barna says that 23% of believers have never read the Bible or never read the Bible at all. You know, Jesus would often ask the religious people of his day, have you never read the scriptures? And of course, to them, he didn't mean literally, have you never read it, but did it ever make any difference? You ever notice what was written there? And for so many believers in uh, the world today or in, in, in the United States, it's as if we've never even read them. Because it's made no difference. The Lord says, it is your life. What does that mean? That the Bible is our life. Well, he goes on. Let's finish the verse. Verse 47. Look at that again. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you were about to cross the Jordan to possess. Among all those who were standing there that day and who heard Moses' words, there were only two people out of all all the whole nation who had ever been into the Promised Land, Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else had died off after the 40 years of discipline. And so to every one of these people, they were looking forward to the future about going and crossing over that river and entering the land that God had promised to them. And God says, I've got a great future planned for you. I've got a great land waiting for you. And to this future that I intend for you, the Bible is going to be the means by which you live. My word. By this word, you shall prolong your days in the land. And the same is absolutely true for us. The plans God has for you the plans that God intends for your future, the Bible, isn't, the Bible is part of that plan. If you are to walk into the path that God wants you to walk in and to live the life that God wants you to live, a devotion to the Word of God is going to be part of that future. It really is. Here's a powerful principle that I, I hope you truly take to heart, and it's simply this. The interaction with the Word of God is the most important spiritual discipline. Of all the disciplines that we will cover this series, I think that the interaction with the Word of God is the most important. Why? Why such a bold and uh, singular statement about the Bible because all the other disciplines stem from it. Even prayer. The Lord taught them to pray, saying uh, giving, what to give? How much to give? how to live, what not to do, what to think. All stems from God's word. Not only that, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he died on the cross for our sins. You wouldn't just get that by going out and looking at the clouds. Romans 1 tells us that God's given us enough revelation in creation to condemn our hearts. We can see there's a God through everything that's been made. And yet we don't worship that God. Instead, we worship what's been made and we are condemned. We all violate our own conscience. That's Romans 2. We all violate our own standard and can be justly condemned. So God's given us enough revelation in creation and in our conscience not to save us, but to condemn us, to show us our need for him. But he's given us his revelation through scripture that takes it to the next level now that shows how you can be saved. Apart from the word of God, We have no idea, no direction in life. All we have is condemnation because of our sin. Kathy and I recently heard of a book. We were listening to the radio and we heard a book whose title was something like, What to Do When You Don't Feel Like Going to Church. And we both kind of looked at each other and Kathy said, You know, I know what the book ought to have. It ought to have about three blank chapters and the last chapter says, Go Anyway. She said, It's all about discipline. And I thought, you know, it's right. That's exactly right, because church attendance and even like small group Bible study attendance is a microcosm of the spiritual life. The spiritual life, success in it by and large is doing what, what you ought to do even when you don't want to do it. Now anybody can do what they want to do when they feel like it. That is not necessarily success. If you, if, if you succeed doing that, it's simply God's grace. But success is doing exactly what uh, you ought to do in that moment when you don't want to do it. What do you do when you don't want to go to church? The answer is, well, go. What do you do when you don't feel like reading the scripture? You read. What do you do when you don't feel like praying? You pray. Why? Because God says that is the means by which you grow. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Jesus prayed... Father, sanctify them with your truth. And then he said, Your word is truth. Sanctify them, or become holy. Grow to be like God through your interaction with the word of God. Peter said, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, like, your, like a little baby longs for mommy's milk, so you are to long for the pure milk of the Bible, the word of God. Peter says, because by it you grow in respect to salvation. The means by which you grow is through his great and precious promises, which has given us everything we need for life and godliness. In temptation, the Lord Jesus quoted from the book that is laid open in front of you, from Deuteronomy. And he quoted in Matthew 4, just look at the screen, he answered Satan and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it's fitting that Jesus is quoting from this same book because that's what the verses that we just read said, isn't it? That you're not just a physical person. The word of God is your life. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And just like Jesus quoted every word, so Moses says every word you are to teach your sons. Every word. To Timothy, Paul said, all scripture is inspired by God. Every single bit of it is inspired by God. So how do you interact to the word of God? Well, in addition to coming and hearing, which is a very passive interaction, but it's a very important part of it, interaction with the word of God includes regular and repeated reading. Regular and repeated reading that God recorded His Word in a book reveals that God wants you to read. God wants you to read and understand His Word. There was a guy in Kansas City some time ago was in an explosion and badly injured. His face was marred. His uh, hands in fact were blown off and uh, he was blinded by the explosion. And the frustrating part initially to him was that he had just become a Christian. Just become a Christian and now he is in this accident, this explosion that, that leaves him unable to read his Bible. He can't read by braille because he didn't have any hands. He can't read with his eyes because he's blind. And he was frustrated and, because all of his learning had to be passive, either somebody read to him or he listened to tapes or whatever. And then he heard about a lady in uh, England who learned how to read Braille with her lips. So he got a Braille Bible and tried it. But because of the explosion, again, all the sensitivity was gone from his lips. And he couldn't, uh, he couldn't even feel with his lips. And accidentally, his tongue brushed across the Braille and he realized he could feel with his tongue. And he learned how to read Braille with his tongue. And when I read this clipping at that point, the guy had already read through the entire Bible four times with his tongue. Isn't that amazing? It is simply a matter of desire and discipline. Every word Jesus said, every word Moses said. Have you ever read every word? Have you ever read the Bible all the way through? You know, many people haven't. Seems like a daunting task. You would think, well, you know, this guy's got nothing else to do now. Might as well read the whole Bible four times. Every word, though, every word comes from the mouth of God. And it's not quite as daunting a task as you might think. Since they've recorded the Bible on CD, we know how long it takes to read through the Bible, and you can read through the Bible out loud in 71 hours. You know the average American watches that much TV in two weeks? In about 15 to 20 minutes a day, you can read the entire Bible in one year. Five minutes a day, and you can read through it in three years. And yet the majority of Christians never read the Bible all the way through in their whole life. It is an issue of discipline. It is an issue of motivation. And talk about motivation. You know, if we knew that there was a million dollars in gold under this stage right here, you know underneath the stage there was a million dollars in gold you know we probably couldn't finish the message in fact i'd help you tear the stage up looking for it if you knew that there was a million dollars hidden somewhere in the theater we don't know where but it's hidden somewhere in the theater i guarantee you we would find it wouldn't we we would and yet the bible tells us that there are riches to be found for those who will spend time and study this book. But do we really believe the benefits are there?
1: If we believe we'd find a
0: million bucks, if we'd search for it, we would do it. We believe the benefits are there, it's worth the effort. Do we believe what God's Word says that the riches that are that are there, some on the surface, some below the surface, are worth it? Let me ask you a question. What are you reading right now? What are you reading right now? You know, I think a lot of the frustration often is you don't know where to start or you don't know what to read. and There are some very simple solutions to that in reading plans. We've got, if you look at our church's website, on the links page, there is a link to the Navigator's Discipleship Journal reading plan, and there's a couple of good ones there. You can download it, or if you don't have internet access, we can get you a copy. We hand them out almost every year anyway. It's a great tool to take you through the Bible in a year. There's nothing holy about going through it in a year, but it is a manageable amount that takes you through it often enough to where it becomes familiar to you. Uh, There are also one-year Bibles. You'll find all kinds of tools, but it's not going to do it for you. It, It does come down to discipline that's why reading the Bible is a spiritual discipline because uh, it requires you reading it, it requires you opening your heart and in fact a wonderful opportunity is coming up this year the uh, folks who will be joining the church we're going to start in a couple of weeks announcing our discovery class which is going to start in mid-August and it's a seven week class that introduces you to the church and Once you become a member of the church, uh, you're involved in a group that reads the Bible together, as a group, for a year. And you get together and you talk about the Scripture, the entire Bible, in the course of a year. So I encourage you, if you've never done that, that would be the perfect opportunity for you, and a great context for encouragement and for questions and everything. Where are you reading right now? You know, every major decision that I have had to face in life, God has given me a verse of scripture that has directed me. To get married, Proverbs chapter 3. I remember back in 1988, up at the fourth floor of the UNT library, the music library off in the corner, I was there with my Bible and a lot of desperate prayers. God, do you want me to get married? This is a big deal. I mean, how do I know? I mean, how do I know? You know? you know. How do you know? Proverbs 3. I read through that. And the verses that are so familiar, all of a sudden like a laser. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And So I said, God, all right trusting you to direct my path. And he did. And you know what? He was right. He directed me through the word. Uh, In Psalm 3, he directed me on a couple of major financial decisions. Eleven years ago to build the house that we lived in and now recently to to move to another house. Uh, And God used the Bible. And I tell you, when you're making major decisions like that, you need some direction, don't you? to go back to school again. I had decided after my, uh, you know, so many years in script in uh, seminary, I decided, that's it, man, I'm done. I got this degree, I'm done. But then reading through Ecclesiastes nine years ago, God challenged me once again to, uh, to go back and be sharpened through scripture. And I know that many of you could stand up and say, you know what? A particular verse God used in my life to guide me. And that's what it's there for. And it's not through a haphazard, you know, open it up and doing that, but rather a systematic and a regular study, understanding it in context. And I guarantee you, God's going to speak to you. If your heart is teachable, God will teach you through this book because that's its purpose. What are you reading right now? You ought to be in the the Word of God. And regularly and repeatedly reading it. Don't just read it once and go, well, i got it. Repeatedly reading it. In fact, the Bible itself says you need to read it over and over. Look at the screen at Deuteronomy 32. Actually, we're in Deuteronomy 32. Flip back once, Deuteronomy 31. I don't think we've got this one on the screen. Deuteronomy 31, verse 10. 10 and 11. Look at that. Then Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, now notice, every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of death, the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Every seven years, they had the Bible read to them. Or at least the first five books up to this point were written. Every seven years, repeatedly, They were to have the scripture going through them over and over and over again. Every single word. Peter said the same thing. Now look at the screen at 2 Peter 1. Peter said, Therefore I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter says it's important for you to be reminded of the truth. And in the same book, a couple of chapters later, he says, he says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring you up, uh, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And here's what he wants us to remember, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, And the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, that's the New Testament. Peter says, I I want to stir you up and challenge you to remember the Old Testament and the New Testament. To remember the Bible. Paul wrote the same thing in Philippians 3. He said, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things, again, is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Same things. It's a safeguard. It reminds you of the basics D.L. Moody once said, A man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough for the next six months or take in sufficient air into his lungs at one time to sustain life for a week. We must draw upon God's boundless store of grace from day to day as we need it. In other words, Moody is saying, You can't just read the Bible you know, once every six months and expect to have a healthy spiritual life. It's not going to happen. How often do you eat? Just like Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. I think the comparison is there for good reason. How often do you eat? You eat a lot, don't you? So the word of God ought to be continually on your mind. And when the Lord Jesus was tempted in the wilderness of Judea, he didn't have you know, Deuteronomy tucked under his arm when the devil came, said, you know, turn these stones to bread. Jesus didn't go, okay. Yeah, hang on, hang on a second. Let's see. Deuteronomy. Uh, yeah, here it is. A uh, man shall not live by bread alone. Nope. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. This is what we're going to talk about next week. The whole idea of committing the word of God to your mind. Because out on the highway, in that intense moment, In the heat of the moment, as a single, sexually, you're going to have those times when you've got to have the Word of God immediately on your mind. Or if it's just a matter of situation, circumstance, and your feelings, just like Eve in the garden, it's all over. Committed to memory. Not only a regular and repeated reading, but also it's true that interaction with the Word of God includes study and personal application. A couple of water sports I really like are scuba diving and water skiing. Don't get to do them both a lot, but uh, enjoy it. Water skiing, cover a lot of ground fast. Scuba diving, really slow down and get underneath the surface, don't you? And see what's there that you never would see water skiing. Water skiing is like reading through the Bible in a year. Cover a lot of ground fast, but study. Is like slowing down and getting under the surface. And this is what you ought to do every single day. As you're reading, say, Lord, give me something. Give me one verse. Give me one word. Give me something I can chew on throughout the day. And that's where you go beneath the surface. And it's even if it's for five minutes, you take that verse apart. You study it. Look at the context. Look at the commands that are there and personalize it. Say, Lord, how can I make this work for me today? And if you've got one of those watches that beeps on the hour, a great technique is to have that thing beep every hour, and every hour when you hear that beep, 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 it reminds you of the truth that you read about that morning. Some device, something, be it a watch, be it a 3x5 card on your dashboard, wear your shoes backwards, you know anything that you can do that will remind you of the the kernel that, that the Lord gave you, of the truth that the Lord gave you that morning. In James chapter 1, just let me read you this verse. He says, Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Easy to hear it, right? And yes, it's a total waste of time if you don't do it, if you don't apply it to your life. And this is what's going to happen. You may have a great Bible reading program, you may read through the Bible in a year. And yet if you don't have that mindset of reading it, say, God, speak to me today. What's the one truth that I can glean from this text that will that I can apply today in my family, in my work, walking down the street, in my thought life, with my finances? There's, there's got to be a truth that I can apply. And you find that and you chew on it all day long. Otherwise, as James says, and he goes on in his illustration, It's like you're looking at a mirror and go away and you've still got chicken in your teeth. You haven't done anything about what you've seen. You look in the mirror and you see, well, yep, there it is. And you just walk off. The purpose of the mirror, right, is to show you what needs to be fixed. Same with the scripture. It reflects your heart. And when you come upon it and it reflects what needs to be changed and you go away and you do nothing about it, James says, what good is it? What good is it? So here's another question I have for you. What are you putting into practice right now? What are you putting into practice right now? You know, there may be some of you that could stand up and say, here's where I'm reading, and that's great. Where are you reading right now? Here's where I'm reading. What is that next question? What are you, what are you doing? What are you putting into practice right now? There may be something you've been working on for years, and yet you know exactly where it is in the scripture, that moment that God convicted you of it. Maybe you put the date in the margin and a little prayer written there, God help me to do this. What are you putting into practice right now? No matter where you are, there ought to be an answer to that question as a believer. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you ought to always be a doer of the word. And if you meditate on that truth long enough, it may take years, I promise you, God will change your life. And if your life has not been changed by the Word of God, then more than likely what's happened is you're either not in it or you're reading it, but you're not taking it into your heart. You're not saying, God, how can I practice it? Because it's built, it's equipped to change you if you'll let it, if you will do those those simple things. Where are you reading and what are you putting into practice right now? It's not an idle word for you. It's not a prop that you bring with you on Sunday. It's not something you sit on your nightstand to soothe your conscience. And it's not something you simply read and check off a box. It is truth, God's words given to you to change your life. And it'll do it, if you let it. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks that you have not left us as orphans, that you've sent the Holy Spirit to reside within us and also to give us insight into the Bible that you've given. Over and over in Scripture you've told us that it's not an idle word, that we don't live by bread alone, but we live by the Word of God, that we are to be continually stirred up and reminded of the prophets and reminded of the apostles' teaching. We have continually telling us in Scripture that the Scripture is to be our life and not an idle word. And yet, honestly, Lord, in the busyness of our lives with our kids, with our schedules, with our job, and with the yard to mow, so often the Bible is put on the back burner and it becomes an idle word. God, I ask, uh, we all pray today and just want to rededicate our devotion. Devotion to the scripture, but devotion also to allowing it to change us. And so maybe today, the kernel of truth that we walk away with uh, is that we need to be in the Word. And we make a regular time, each morning, each afternoon, or each night, but a regular time where we can allow you to speak to us and allow you to change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Lord bless you. We're dismissed.